All right, so uh, this morning we look at a section of what we read uh, for our scripture reading. As I mentioned, Romans chapter 11, verses 11 to 16. And the title for this message is The Gentiles' Salvation, or Gentile Salvation, because largely that is what Paul is concerned with. He is discussing now uh, how the Gentiles, those who are outside of the nation of Israel, he means that term very broadly, how the Gentiles outside of the nation of Israel uh, will be saved and what they then ought to do, as we have read this morning as a part of our scripture reading, what they ought to do now that they are recipients of salvation and what must their disposition, their attitude uh, be toward Israel. And so we will look at those things uh, in the coming days. Uh, But this morning we focus on Gentile salvation and we will be looking at specifically Romans chapter 11, verses 11 to 16. I want to reread just that small portion of verses to you. I say then they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, How much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy... The lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Uh, One of the things that we have been saying as we looked at Romans together is Romans is an epistle that is largely testifying about God's acts in salvation toward his people. And it shows you that he is the first cause of that salvation and his own plan to save whom he has chosen. And so Romans is very much about God. It's an epistle about God and God's acts and what God accomplishes and how God will accomplish it. And to whom are the recipients of this great plan that he has executed. And so Romans is about God. It is certainly filled with theology and filled with all the topics and the things that we certainly, uh, as we have talked about in Bible studies and in sermons, we know them very familiar Uh, And I mean, they're very familiar to us at this point, such as the doctrine of justification, whereby God declares the sinner not guilty on the basis of Christ. Sanctification, both by position, where he declares us cleansed, but also progressively throughout our walk where he cleanses us of unrighteousness by his power. And also, if you just go glorification to be eventually made in his image as we are being crafted in his image now to, to see him as he is upon either his return or our death and being with him and then divine election all these doctrines just come through the epistles uh and particularly romans but the grand art the grand scheme of romans is to tell us about how god acts on behalf of his people the jews and the gentiles the specific acts but it also paul is very clear that god is the first cause and the first source of our salvation be it from the uh, Jews or be it from the Gentiles. And Paul explains everything in between. But I believe that is how you must study Romans. And if you remember, the, the, the key point, the key thesis 
uh, of Romans. The key argument to Romans is found very early on in its earlier chapters uh, where essentially Paul asks a question. And the question, I can paraphrase it for you, is he is essentially saying that God himself has determined to not only save people, but God himself cannot be uh, called unrighteous for limiting the scope of his salvation. So God is not unrighteous because he has determined to act specifically toward a specific group of people. Romans 2 talks about the fact that he is impartial. God is impartial. He's not one who is looking at performance and then he makes his choices and then he changes his mind or he needs help. It's that he has set the terms very plainly and those terms are not only well stated, but those terms are commands. And so you see that in Romans. But it is also a question that Paul puts forward more specifically. If you look at Romans chapter 3, it is kind of the central point of Romans itself. And I want to read it to you very briefly. Romans chapter 3 verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? So now we're starting to key in on the, the argument made throughout all of Romans. The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? So he speaks of a God of mercy and a God of wrath. And all the way through Romans, he's dealing with that divine reality or that divine concept. But then he says he answers in the emphatic way that he answers so many other questions throughout the epistle. In verse 6, he says, may it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? So essentially, the key theme, and if you were to just, as we have worked our way through Romans 3, the key theme and the key question are tied together. How can God be just and justified? How can God be just and justified? So everything we've said can be summarized in that very one short point of what is Romans truly about? It's how can God be just and justified? So everything that's said ties back to that argument and everything said before leads up to that argument. And more specifically, it leads up to that argument because what Paul is discussing is how can God be just in saving some Jews and judging others? And then how can he be just in including some Gentiles and condemning others? And so Paul sets forward to answer that question in its entirety. And to this point, I believe that he has done so, but he keeps building more toward, well, then in fact, in light of those realities, how ought we to respond to the Jews? And then Paul deals with how ought we to respond to rulers, the people who govern over us? How are we to respond to one another? And so he deals with all those things related to the question of God's salvation toward the Gentiles, because salvation toward the Gentiles is unlike anything that the Gentiles for themselves uh, have erected because the best that they've done, as we see in Romans one, is idolatry. That's the best that they've done. The best that the Jews have done is self-righteousness. That's the best they could do. So to our previous context, we have some overlap this morning because the last time we were together, we did look at Romans 11 just a little bit. But Paul begins to transition, as I mentioned, to the meaning for Israel's salvation. And then he begins to transition to what does that mean? For the salvation among the Gentiles. So he transitions from the meaning of Israel's salvation, which we have been discussing over the last few sermons, and how does that relate to the salvation for the Gentiles? And so in verse 11, 
he explains why the salvation has come to the Gentiles. He says plainly why salvation has come to them. And then he says what Israel should consider related to Gentile salvation. Now he goes to both God's divine decree and salvation. And then Paul talks about his own personal strategy to win the Jews to salvation. And that's laid out for us in Romans chapter 11 verses 13 and 14. So we'll look at all of that. But let me say this. First, there are no distinctions. Listen to this. There are no distinctions related to the original spiritual standing of both Jews and and Gentiles. It is why the Bible says what it says about salvation. It says that there is neither Jew nor Greek related to the scope of God's proclamation of his gospel to save. And therefore, there is no distinction about who can be saved among Jews and Gentiles. Now, let me be very careful in how I say that, because there is a distinction when you think about who is the object of divine election. There is a distinction. But there is no distinction about that original spiritual standing of both Gentiles and Jews. What I mean by that is what Paul says already in Romans. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And then he talks about the need for all who have fallen short to be justified, declared righteous, declared not guilty based on what Christ has accomplished. So that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory is not let's just pack up our Bibles and go home. And that's the standard. And God's trying to work it out. And we'll all figure it out. Somebody will you know, let us know what happens next. No, what follows that statement is it demands the need for justification. All have fallen short of God's glory, yet there's a need to be justified because that's the case. And it is God who justifies. So God will legally declare sinners not guilty before the bar of his perfect justice, not based on what they perform but based on what Christ has accomplished on the cross for sinners, namely their salvation. And so you have this reconciliation that needs to take place. But there is no distinction in spiritual standing between Jews and Gentiles. Both are condemned. That's Romans 3. So all are guilty, just as he said. And then among the Jews and Gentiles, as we discovered in Romans chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, No one among the Jews and Gentiles are eternally righteous within themselves. So they do not possess any inner ability to commend themselves to God and earn this salvation. They can't do it. They can't do it on their own. We can't do it on our own. So the Jews and Gentiles both needed someone, capital S, someone to act on their behalf. That someone being the God man, Jesus Christ. But here. In our text, what Paul goes to, he goes to the origin of the plan, whereby God decreed to turn away from Israel for a time and to concentrate his grace and mercy toward the Gentiles. So he goes to the origin of that of that plan and he goes to divine election, meaning God chooses some from among the all to the glory of salvation. And even as you look at later portions of Romans 11, where it says all where it talks about all Israel will be saved. Well, it's because Paul already distinguished who true believing Israel is, the features of their salvation, and who belongs to God among Israel. So it's not that Paul opens the door wide again for some hypothetical scenario where salvation has changed and all can be saved. 
But there is more. There is more. Paul explains, he explains with respect to salvation. He begins to explain here that the salvation of the Gentiles, this should cause great humility and a great fear of the Lord for the Gentiles, especially with the fact that we could do nothing to gain our own salvation. But Paul begins to explain here that our salvation, Gentile salvation, was to make Israel jealous. It was done to make Israel jealous. It was to provoke them, he says in verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? So he's talking about, has every, he's asking the question, has every Jew in Israel stumbled in such a way that they have fallen for good? Because it's one thing to stumble and regain your balance. It's another thing to stumble and fall, never to get up again. And then he answers it right away. May it never be. May it never be. Because he says, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So the Gentiles are not the the divine affection, uh, the recipients of divine affection from God on the simple basis that they have done anything to earn it. They are a part of God's divine plan of salvation to make the Jews jealous, to make them jealous. But nonetheless, they have received their salvation. Now, think about this, because people always talk about God's sovereignty and they say it in a way they don't explain. They say God's sovereignty and they mention all these things about the attributes and characters of God and speak about them as if to do gymnastics over your head. But if you really think about something, when it says God is sovereign. What it means is that he brings everything in his kingdom to his conclusion. And so even Israel's transgression, because when we look at the Old Testament and we look at the prophets and we look at the ministry of Christ and we look at Paul, the apostle and the epistles and the apostles and what they suffer at the hands of the Jews, we sometimes get frustrated. And so and I mean, the frustration, the indignation is correct. But my point is. In that indignation, God is not finished with Israel. And so as wicked as Israel is, God has chosen to say, your wickedness, I'm not going to allow to stop my plans. I'm going to use it for eternal good. And then he turns away from them for a time and in their transgression decides, I'm going to save the nations. That is what it means to truly be sovereign. When no one and nothing can thwart your plan. Because so many speak of God's sovereignty and yet they, in this area of salvation, they preach and dethrone Christ. Or they practice as if Christ has been dethroned. But my point is, it is all of his salvation and he is the divine source of all of it. So what you see here is, you see that this provocation takes place, provoking. He wants to make them jealous. And this provocation was not for the cause of anger and resentment in them. For one, James 1.13 tells us that God tempts no one to sin, first of all. Second of all, they already had anger and murderous hearts toward those whom God had chosen to save outside of their ranks. And so they had this anger and resentment already. It wasn't that God built that up more in them. It was a kind of provocation that he wanted And Paul explains this in verses 12 and 14, but they needed to repent. They needed to fall on their face. They needed to understand that they had committed evil against God in every way, collectively and individually. So it was for the purpose of their repentance. 
Verse 12. Now, if their transgression. This is I mean, this is how awesome the Lord is. It's not showing you how awesome Israel is. It's showing you how awesome the Lord is. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world. Now, just think about that statement. Their sin, their rebellion, their continual disobedience toward God results in eternal riches for the world. Now, we know that that term world is a qualified term. It is not everyone within the scope of humanity with both hypothetical potentiality or everyone in total. What it's talking about is there are some Gentiles in every age from among every nation who are divine recipients of of an eternal kingdom because the Jews have failed, because the Jews have failed. And he says, and their failure, and he calls it what it is, it's their failure. It's not just they messed up. It's their failure. Their failure is riches for the Gentiles. And then it says, how much more will their fulfillment be? So they're supposed to be the original recipients of divine grace. They're supposed to be the ones, the first fruits who inherit the eternal kingdom. And in their failure and their failure to obey and their failure to worship Yahweh as they ought. And they did indeed fail. The Gentiles are now brought into the plan. But it also says, how much more will their fulfillment be? Well, guess what that says? There will be a fulfillment. There will be a fulfillment. And we have spent the latter part, uh, or actually the beginning part, but we have spent uh, the beginning part of, of, of our study looking at Romans 9 to 11, where Paul explains all of that. He explains who is the true Israel. He explains who is the true Israel. But they have they have transgressed. They committed sins against God. They failed to maintain the standing of perfect righteousness and obedience before God. They missed the mark continually. That's what sin is. They missed the mark continually. And that mark is perfection, perfecting holiness. But their transgressions, their trespasses, their sins have meant for the glory of and the riches of the world around them. So that's what happened. That's why you and I exist today as we do. Now, again, this does not mean for every person and nation without exception, because here we are not talking about temporal glory. The glory of material kingdoms and the things of those kingdoms uh, that they would uh, pronounce for themselves as glorious, those things pass away. We're talking about eternal matters. So in view here is eternal glory and eternal salvation. That's their fulfillment. It's not simply their standing as a nation or being recognized as a nation or others recognizing them as a nation. It's not simply that they come into a situation where we're we're happy with the small concessions of a small few joining a church fellowship. That's not it. He's talking about total, complete fulfillment and restoration of the nation itself. And they will worship their Messiah. They will worship their Messiah. That is, they will not worship a man. They will not worship the Antichrist. They will not worship the church. They will worship the Messiah. The Messiah. So he is talking about eternal matters. But then we consider. We consider that this is not simply all for Israel. Meaning this is not simply what Israel 
will experience because Paul goes back to the Gentiles. Look at verse 13. He says it very plainly. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles. So Paul says, I'm not an apostle to the Jews, but I'm telling you what will happen to the Jews. And I'm telling you what has happened to the Gentiles and what will happen to the Gentiles. He says, I magnify my ministry. I magnify my ministry. There's a couple of points that I want to bring up. Let's 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 look. Let's look at it this way first. The Gentiles, I want to say, have benefited directly from Israel's transgression. And as I've said, this ought to be it ought to be. This is how, you know, someone truly believes and has faith in God's plan to save Jews and Gentiles. This is how you truly know it ought to be a cause for humility and eternal thanksgiving as we look inward and outward. As we look inwardly, we say we didn't deserve any of this. And in fact, left to ourselves, we would be recipients of divine wrath. We weren't seeking them. We couldn't find them. We couldn't perform our way there. We only had wickedness. Romans 1 shows that. But this humility and eternal thanksgiving should not only be a part of it, but it should be a part of how we think about the fulfillment of remnant Israel. That should also cause within us humility and eternal thanksgiving. It's one thing to celebrate our own salvation as Gentiles. It's another thing to celebrate what will be. So that is also the hope of the Gentiles that God will fulfill his plan among the Jews. That's the hope of the Gentiles. Well, why is that the hope of the Gentiles? Just because they're uh, a people? No, because you're centering that hope around the Messiah. That is a part of the grand plan of Jesus Christ himself. So when we talk about the glory of Christ and people don't talk about Israel, you're not really talking about the glory of Christ because Christ is concerned with what he will accomplish with both the Jews and the Gentiles. So this isn't a when he says in verse 12, how much more will their fulfillment be? This isn't a hypothetical statement or a wish. He's not wishing it'll happen. He's not just making a statement saying, you know, I, I. I hope that they'll be fulfilled at some point. Who knows? Because that would cancel out everything that we have been studying to this point and the certainty that Paul gives that these things will come to pass. But it is reality given our context. It is reality given our context of what precedes what we're in this morning and what follows. Paul speaks with certainty. Some from among the Jews will be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ at wholesale. It will be visible and it will be accomplished. But verse 13, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, he says, Paul is instructing the Gentiles related to Israel's salvation and their eventual reconciliation to God. But he is also explaining. Listen to this. And Paul does this in his epistles. He explains why he does what he does. He doesn't just do it and say you all should follow. He says, here's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Here's why I travel where I travel. Here's why I go speak where I speak. He's explaining why he has conducted his ministry in the fashion he laid out in Romans chapter one, verses 16 to 17. When he starts to speak to the Gentiles, he tells them, this is why I'm going into the synagogue first. This is why I'm traveling to these lands and trying to win the Jews. Because in in, uh, Romans chapter one, verses 16 to 17, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul's task given to him by God, listen to this, was indeed to be a messenger to the Gentiles. That's what he was. But to within that explain the purpose of Israel. This was Paul's task to explain the purpose of Israel related to the Gentiles very clearly. So this was no secondary matter, as none are in the scripture at large. There are no secondary matters. The point that I'm making to you is you have all these academically arrogant views that attack God's plan towards saving remnant Israel. And all these trite remarks and all these things that people say when they take scripture out of context because they think Their lives are filled with performance and works righteousness. So they're happy because in their minds, they think that they have worked and earned their way to righteousness. And so therefore, they are not unlike the unbelieving Jews who were angry that God turned to the Gentiles in the first place. They are angry that God would give grace to Israel who abandoned him so visibly because they themselves, these unbelieving Evangelical academics, they believe that God himself needed their help. So they erect all these views. And why that's a problem is because Paul's ministry was centered around explaining the purpose of Israel. That was his ministry. He wanted to explain the purpose of Israel to the Gentiles. So he went to the Gentiles and said, Here is what God will do for Israel. Here's what he's done for you. And here's what ought to be your response. And he lays it out so simply. So I don't understand when people would call themselves the New Testament church or they say, you know, we're following the apostles and they don't do that. Or they attack the same Israel that Paul was saying. Well, God's going to save a remnant from among them. And salvation is along the same terms. So those who attack it want to say, well, you know, there's sounds like there's different uh, there's different salvation plans for each and all these other things that people say to throw you off the scent of the fact that God is going to save remnant Jews. He's going to judge some from among Israel. He's going to save a remnant from among the Gentiles. He's going to judge some from among the Gentiles as well. But it's not only what I'm saying as to why that's the case. That was the emphasis of Paul's ministry. He's saying it. He says, this is how I magnify my ministry. I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Now, if he was speaking to, to the Gentiles, you know, in today's age, the, the, uh, the sophisticated evangelical would say, well, Paul, you don't need to tell us about Israel. You just talk to us about the church. Give us some 10 step program about how to build a successful church. But Paul is saying, I'm a mess. I'm the first messenger to the Gentiles at large. And not only is my message about the gospel coming to Gentiles, my message is about remnant Israel, what God will accomplish. You know what he's doing? He's tying Old Testament and New Testament together. So how can people say that they are Pauline and they don't preach the Old Testament? How can people say that they want what God wants in salvation But they don't deal with Israel from the Old Testament. 
You have to deal with fulfillment because, as I've said, it's not hypothetical. It's not a wish. Paul is saying these things are certain. So Paul explained the need for his ministry. Listen to this. And I would say this is true of every Christian. Paul explained the need for his ministry to always have Israel in view. I'm not talking about settling for an Israel that is not the Israel Paul is referring to. In fact, I'm not referring, I'm not referring to political Zionism at all. What I'm referring to is God's divine election toward remnant Jews who will fall on their face, repent of their sins, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And that's it. That's the Israel I'm for. That's the Israel we should all be for. But that's the Israel that is always in view in the message concerning Christ. That is not anti-Semitism. That is not uh, being cultural, culturally insensitive. No, that is telling the truth. Because guess what? I'm no different from them apart from saving grace. I'm no different from them. The Gentile is no different. And that's what Paul deals with for most of Romans 11. We're no different in the means by which we had to be saved by Christ alone through his cross work and salvation by God the Father through him. But Paul makes Israel a concern, a chief concern, even though he was a minister to the Gentiles. Even though he was a minister to you, you want to be relevant. You have to you have to preach concerning Jews and Gentiles. That's how you remain relevant and timeless. You have to preach concerning remnant Israel and Gentiles. That's unpopular, a very unpopular uh, position today. It's unpopular. Uh, but as I've said, it's very popular to talk about an Israel that is not the Israel to which Paul refers. I'm talking about political Zionism. I'm talking about the politics behind establishing a nation and establishing that nation on tradition, a tradition that excludes Jesus Christ himself. And then saying that that is the Israel that we should be for. No, that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what the Bible teaches. And I love humanity too much to pretend that's what the Bible teaches. It's not hate teaching. I love uh, those crafted in God's image. So therefore, you have to make it plain what that means. Who are they? And then you have some who say, as New Covenant ministers, I'm talking about conservative evangelical thought. As New Covenant ministers, there is no need for us to consider Israel at all, or there is little need to spend too much time concerning the Old Testament. Well, I would say that kind of thinking is against Paul, and it's against Christ, and it's against God himself. Because Paul is going to the Gentiles and saying, let me tell you about remnant Israel. So today's minister, because these things have not been fulfilled yet, today's minister is above that? I would say no. But I would also say that we don't get to take shortcuts and establish an Israel of our own fancy, of our own imagination, and then say, well, let's move on to the Gentiles. It's more lucrative. No, you have to speak as the text speaks and concern yourself with the true Israel. But listen, it's not only what Paul was saying where he locked arms with God's divine decree and purpose concerning Israel. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles 
It's a very this is a very important point. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was meant to provoke jealousy among his fellow kinsmen and to see to their salvation. Where am I getting that from? Verse 14. He says, if somehow I magnify my ministry among the Gentiles, I make it known that I'm preaching the Gentiles. I make it known that I'm associating with Gentiles. I make it known that the Lord's church is being built through Gentiles. Well, he says, I magnify it for a purpose. Listen, if somehow, if somehow I might move the jealousy, my fellow countrymen and save some of them, not all of them, but somehow to save some of them. Somehow they become so provoked that I, a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew among the Hebrews, that preaching to the Gentiles would cause a provocation. The kind of provocation that would move my fellow countrymen to jealousy. If you remember, this is the answer. This is the answer to what he says in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance to knowledge. And he deals with the fact that before that, wishing himself. Uh, look at chapter nine. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Verse two of chapter nine. That I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What Paul is explaining here is that he doesn't have to be a curse and separated from Christ. Impossible as it is in his case. Because he was in Christ and of Christ. But I'm saying the solution was then I have to continue instant, fervent, consistent in my ministry among the Gentiles so that I can move the Jews to jealousy. So that is why I minister to the Gentiles. So my point is the apostle to the Gentiles is preaching to the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous because that's what God wants to accomplish in the salvation of the Gentiles. A sound Christian and a sound ministry, not just from a minister or preacher, but I mean a sound ministry of every Christian is to be completely aligned with the will of God. It's not the numbers. It's not the fanfare. It's not the popularity and acclaim. Because Paul went in another direction. But the direction he went was exactly what God wanted. It was exactly what God had decreed. This is my salvation plan. So Paul said, I'm not only going to talk about it, I'm not going to lecture about it, I'm not going to just write books about it. What I'm going to do is I'm actually going to practice what God wants. I'm going to go into the synagogue. I'm going to be beaten, imprisoned, torn down by both Jews and Gentiles. They're all going to attack me. But this is what God wants, scope and sequence. He wants me to preach to Israel. He wants me to talk to the Gentiles about Israel. And he wants me to tell Gentiles who may become puffed up and arrogant that they are not special in and of themselves. But that in the timeline of God's divine plan, they are experiencing salvation so that Jews become jealous and are brought uh, to salvation in Christ. He explains it so plain. He explains it so plain. There is great freedom in simply doing what God has decreed and just walking in the reality of what God has 
has commanded us to do. There's great freedom in that. There's great freedom. I didn't say it's easy. I didn't say there's great acclaim. I didn't say that there's celebration. But there is great freedom. And Paul was a man who was truly free because that's how he ministered. God, you want to reach the Jews first? Okay, I'm not just going to talk about the Jews. How about I go into the synagogue and preach to them? So Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was meant to provoke jealousy among his fellow kinsmen to see their salvation. Paul wanted some of them saved. He already made that point. He said it. Well, why? Because for many of them, he'll speak about this later in Romans 11. For many of them, a permanent hardening had taken place. But for some of them, the hardening was partial. And Paul didn't exactly know who was who. But he knew that the partial existed in every generation. Well, why? Because Paul taught concerning the remnant. He believed God's words concerning the remnant. For there would come a time when they would hear the cry of repentance and fall on their faces and repent. Some of them. But this was not only Paul's hope. It was one of Paul's motivations. This was his motivation. That's a, that's a key thing to consider. It was his motivation behind his Gentile ministry. It was his motivation. He always had his eye on Israel. He always had his eye on Israel. You would think that if anybody should say, you know, forget Israel. It was Paul. They persecuted him. They called him a false teacher. They caused disruptions in every city. To try to stop his ministry from going forward. But Paul always had his eye on them. He always had his eye on them. Not to rejoin them in their present state. But so that in his ministry he could provoke them. Well then that tells me he sees the Gentiles who are recipients of divine grace as privileged. Well why are they privileged? Because they receive an eternal kingdom. They have salvation. So he didn't pity them. He didn't say, you know, poor you, you all don't go to a mega church where they're teaching you about golf and marriage and all this other stuff. Poor you. He didn't say that. You know what Paul said? You're the recipient of divine grace. You have an eternal kingdom. You are privileged. But I always have my eyes set on those who are lost. I always have my ministry set on those who are lost. I'm speaking to you because I love you, but I'm speaking beyond you because there's so many who don't have what you have. But you are privileged. I don't care if it were two of you in here who believe divine election. You were saved by grace through faith in Christ. You are privileged. So now I have to I have to consider not only you, but I have to think about those who aren't privileged. Well, works righteousness, you can't get here because in works righteousness, you're always performing. And you're only dealing with people who you believe can attain to your standard. But when you believe in divine grace, you always have your eye on the lost. You always have your eye, your heart set on the lost. God gathering them in, being reconciled. He always had his eye on Israel. And I would say directly, we should always have our eye on Israel. Again, I'm not talking about political Zionism headlines. We should always have our eye on God's plan for Israel Related to what he's laid out for the remnant, according to divine grace and salvation. Paul did not conveniently redefine who Israel was. He didn't conflate them or blend them with the Gentiles. He wanted Israel to see the salvation of the Gentiles and be saved for themselves. This is what God has decreed. 
I'm convinced in every age where there's like a prevailing wickedness or religious deception, the answer is to be so fervent and consistent in ministry to watch people grow in their sanctification and that be a testimony about what God is accomplishing in them. That's the fight. For them to see the power of the actual power of God. Instead of people thinking they have the power of God, the power of God working through his word. But he wanted Israel to see the salvation of the Gentiles. He wanted them to be saved. Well, why does he want that? Because that's what God decreed. That's He wants what God decreed. That's called a Christian. A Christian wants what God has decreed. Well, why are there so many ministers and ministries and things that are just doing things that God hasn't decreed? They don't want what God has decreed. They want what they want for themselves. They want what Satan has blinded them to. But it is to want what God has decreed. And they're out there. They're out there. Not making the case that they only exist where we are. They're out there. But that is the measurement. That's the test. That's the standard. Wanting what God decreed. That's the standard of sanctification. I want what God wants. I want God's will. And I want to accomplish it. I want to live according to it. So then you see here the connection as we look to close. You see the connection between verses 14 and 15. If somehow I might move them to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He frames it in the form of a question, a rhetorical question. But I will say this. This this shows God as all powerful. Because, as I said before, he even made it to where Israel's rejection meant that the Gentiles would be reconciled. This reconciliation of the world is not hypothetical. It's not universal in scope and application. It is actual reconciliation of actual Gentiles, some of them from among the entire population. Some Gentiles among the many will be definitely saved. This chapter is not speaking of what might happen, what could possibly happen if it were possible. But instead, it is referring to what will certainly happen. Paul's only refrain is that it is not the call. It is not. I'm sorry. It has not been the case in his lifetime up to that point. That's his only refrain. I haven't seen it yet, but I have faith that it will occur because God has said it will. But as we said before, Paul practiced. He's looking beyond his time as he considered God's full eternal decree related to salvation. That's why it's a satanic thought to say eschatology doesn't matter and getting it right doesn't matter. Because you should always be looking forward as you walk with Christ. Looking forward, but also looking at the past in certain respects as well. So Paul was looking beyond his time concerning God's full eternal decree. And so he knew like the prophets of old who considered the eventual coming of Christ. That's what the prophets of old did. He knew that remnant Israel would receive their eventual salvation. Also in verse 15, it's not Israel who accepts something, be it Jesus, the message, or even the apostle. Because I want you to be plain about what is said. For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Just want to very briefly give you some clarity about that term. Paul writes that they will be accepted by God. That's the sequence of what is said. That is in the language. That's that's what it means. That is the teaching of reconciliation. So it's not as though Israel could seek righteousness for themselves 
come to the right conclusions concerning their need for salvation. No one can do that. We already established that point as Paul has in Romans 3. But instead, if you were to look at that verse and kind of look at how some of the words are laid out there, you'll understand that it is God who is acting upon them. It's not that they're assessing God and saying, "Okay, Lord, we accept the terms after negotiation and we agree. We believe that your plan is efficient. We've come to Jesus. No, it's that God accepts them. And he only accepts some of them, but they must surrender. They must surrender. So it's not an equal negotiation. It's here's the plan. You must surrender. So they have to come to terms with the salvation before them, but only some will. And we long for that day. You and I, we truly long for that day. So the idea here is essentially this. When we when we think about verse 15, what will their acceptance be? But life from the dead. The idea here is Israel is being received into the kingdom of God. That's the idea of that phrase. Israel is being received into the kingdom of God. It's not they're assessing the kingdom of God and coming to a decision. Because that would negate everything we said concerning works righteousness, concerning no one seeks after God. Literally as it's constructed, if the idea here is being received into the kingdom of God. God is receiving them. For they have already rejected. They've already rejected the message. So it's not they're going back and forth and somehow, you know, at the ninth hour or at the twelfth hour, they decide, OK, I'm, I'm going to the Lord. I'm, 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 I'm going to be with him. No. They've already rejected. So God must act upon them. But their rejection alienated them, bringing salvation to the Gentiles to provoke them. And their acceptance, not them accepting, but God accepting them will result in eternal life. And escaping eternal death. Let's pray.